This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. According to the NIH, there has been a 70% decline annually in the death rate from cardiovascular disease in the last 50 years, and a 1% decline annually in the death rate from cancer over the last 50 years. How can this be when we keep hearing about great new drug discoveries and immunotherapy advancers? And if true, isn't there another way to approach the nightmare that is cancer? Dr. Azra Raza brings her decades of experience as an esteemed oncologist to answer these questions and provide a radical reimagining of the cures and treatment of cancer in her new book titled First Cell and the Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. Her book has received critical acclaim She's gotten starred reviews in Kirkus and PW and picked as as the book to watch by the New York Times and LitHub. Her book is not only grounded in extensive scientific analysis, but shares deeply personal stories of hope and deeply personal stories of hope and despair. And most beautifully, her book is enveloped by her sense of humanity and grace and wisdom. Dr. Raza, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much, Roxanne. I'm your biggest fan. Oh, well, that's so sweet. <laughs> so let's start with this. How can there have only been a 1% decline? I'd like to make a minor correction in what you said. In okay. cardiovascular disease, indeed, there is a 70% decline in the last 50 years. But in cancer, it's a 1% decline over the last three decades only. Mm. And this is following a steep increase in the incidence and mortality from cancer for the 60 years preceding it. So Mm. essentially, mortality in cancer has been running in parallel with smoking incidence. And the the increase we saw was because of the increase in smoking of women and more men and children. And now the decline that we are seeing in the last 30 years, unfortunately, that is still not because of some great new drug we have invented to treat cancer. It is also from now, finally, the anti-smoking campaigns showing their benefits, so less people smoking. And the fact that we are diagnosing cancer earlier and earlier, thanks to all the fancy, sophisticated diagnostic and screening measures mm-hmm. that have been developed so that we can, we know we can treat cancer when it is in an early stage better than we can when it is advanced. And those two factors, early detection, decline in smoking, are now accounting for the decrease by 1% a year following an increase. So right now we are back to the mortality rate that was being seen in 1930s. That's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Depressing, but we are curing 70% of the patients that are diagnosed today. And so that's what I was trying to reconcile, that, you know, the statistic I saw was that we're curing 68%, almost 70% of the cancers, yet we're not seeing the decline in 
mortality or the increase in surviving cancer that you would think that those two things go together. So is, if I'm hearing you correctly, the increase in survival is coming more from the early detection than from the efficacy of drugs. That's a big statement. I'm not... No, you are partially right that it is coming from early detection and also because less people are smoking. Mm. So a lot lot of uh, cancers associated with that damage from smoking is declining. Uh, Of course, paralleling it is the increase in uh, the elderly population, which is the most susceptible to cancer. But I wanted to point out to you that what I find particularly disturbing to me is that, yes, we can go around thumping our chests and proclaiming it from the rooftops that we are procuring 70% of the patients, but curing them with what? Mm. And and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. One of the things that was like almost um, like reading a little bit of a mystery novel was the way you describe cancer. And I'm going to read little parts of it because... I'd like to know how this set of conditions make the use of drugs as a treatment near impossible. So you talk about treating cancer as one disease is like treating Africa as one country, that the cells are vicious and self-obsessed and learn to grow faster and become stronger, smarter, and more dangerous with each successive division And there's a feedback loop using past performance to actually improve the efficiency of the cell and that you see this metamorphosis in front of our eyes when treatment causes regression of the tumor in one area, just as fresh lesions crop up in another. And then you describe these as mini Frankensteins. So what is it about this set of conditions about the cells that make drug treatment a almost impossible climb as a way to treat cancer. Hearing it from you sounds <laughs> really. Uh, I'm reading uh, your words. I know, <laughs> but hearing my own words back like that gave me the chills also. Because basically, what I suddenly realized as you were reading it is, what are we up against? Mm. We are up against biology which has had millennia of evolutionary advantage over anything we can do. Right. I think that in that paragraph, I have tried to, um, to uh, uh, describe the immense and constantly dynamically changing and evolving complexity that we call cancer. Um, even though it begins, say, with one or two things going wrong in the cell and working in concert together to make the cells uh, basically go rogue. Each time that cell divides now, it is potentially opening itself to two new cancers because as the DNA is copied much more rapidly than is normal for the cell because the cell cycle is now much 
uh, more accelerated. Um, each time the DNA that is copied can make errors in copying. So those mm. errors are called mutations. So every subsequent division produces cells with new mutations, which are potentially new cancers. So within each cancer, there are thousands and thousands of potential new cancers waiting to, biding their time and waiting to take, take their turn to come out and um, repopulate and become the dominant population somewhere else. So two things I want to point out to you is cardiologists became smarter than us much faster. They mm. realized that instead of constantly trying to treat end-stage disease, we should try to tackle the problem early. So they started fixing coronaries, putting stents in, doing bypass surgeries, etc. But the real revolution came when they realized that we should lower the cholesterol and prevent cardiac disease from happening, change people's lifestyles, whatever could be done to prevent even the appearance. Right. So this 70% mortality is also, uh, I would say, largely because of the preventive measures, the lifestyle changes, the use of statins, and then early intervention. Right. Basically, presenting with cancer for a patient is equivalent to an individual with cardiac disease who has had such an enormous, horrible myocardial infarction or heart attack that the entire, that the only treatment is now a cardiac transplant. And also, the second thing is that if you think about the only diseases that we as doctors can proudly say we can cure, we can't, we haven't cured diabetes, we haven't cured high blood pressure, we just prevent and try to, um, to act proactively, mm -hmm. rather. But the only diseases we can proudly say are infectious diseases. In fact, the appearance of antibiotics in the 40s doubled human life expectancy. Just the one discovery. Right. But the real revolution in infectious disease also came with the preventive part with vaccines. Mm. You know, my husband Harvey was from Brooklyn. He grew up there. Every summer they were shunted off to the Catskills because his parents were scared to death of him getting polio. We him too. and his brother. My family yeah. too. So you see, it, that's all gone, disappeared uh, because of preventive measures. So I'm saying that oncologists also need to get down from their high horses. Mm. We have to take off the blinders, see the complexity of the problem, stop trying to contain this monster by reductionist approaches and hoping to find one gene that's gone wrong, affecting one signaling pathway that we can then attack with one magic bullet. Sure, that was good 50 years ago, and it worked in a couple of cancers, but for the rest of the cancers, it's far too complex a problem. They are mini Frankensteins, each cancer cell as it is being born. So I am making this appeal to, to in some way, reduce our confidence and, and hubris in thinking that we can cure such a, uh, a monster. Such a monster. And we can the only thing we are curing is if we can detect it early, slash it, cut it out, or try to poison the whole body in the hope that whatever cells are there will also die. It's just uh, it's time to think for a better future, at least. You talk about in the book, and I'm curious how much money is even spent on this, that the failure rate of drugs 
brought to testing is a 95%. And of the 5% that survive, on the average, they're adding under three months to someone's life. So the question I would have, I'm a business person, I'm a bookseller. If I had a failure rate of 95%, I would I would think about a new system. So why is this system with its, you know, hundred and something billion dollars continue to be so difficult to displace? <laughs> That's now it's your turn to answer. <laughs> Roxanne, I can I only answer I only ask questions. You're the one with the answers. I could ask you the same question about so many institutions yeah. in this country and world over. How have we come to this reductio ad absurdum point? How is this possible? So your question is a, obviously a very practical and a very fair question to ask that why are we pursuing an enterprise with a failure rate of 95%? Yeah. And not just pursuing it theoretically, investing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Because let me just paint this scenario for you. For you. Excuse Let's me, say, I would understand the 90% failure rate if the 5% cured people, yes. right? Because then you would make that arrangement. Yes. It's the fact that the 5% is not changing that much. Absolutely correct. And this goes to show you the desperation of patients. Mm. Everyone is starved for good news on the cancer front. Yeah. And so even those few months of uh, uh, disease uh, uh, progression, disease-free survival, or giving a grandfather the time to attend his grandchild's uh, graduation is uh, is worthwhile. But as you pointed out, the 95% failure rate is bad enough in itself. The 5% that succeeds should have failed because they are only prolonging survival for a fraction of the patient. So if we give those the drug with which was approved, one of the 5% drugs, we gave it to 100 patients. Most of the time, 20 to 30 will respond and the median response will last a median of few months, through mm. two to five. Most current trials don't even look at survival as an endpoint. And under great pressure from the public and advocacy groups, FDA has had to not only lower its bar for approving a drug for minimal survival rates, they've had to even take it off the table completely. To move the drugs forward to be available. Public is demanding that there should be drugs without, and that's my concern, that we need to educate the public about what the real facts are, that 42% individuals who are diagnosed with cancer today becoming completely financially ruined for what? And, you know, I want to go back. One of the elements that you have in the book are a number of riveting personal stories of Omar, Kitty, um, Lady N, your daughter's friend, Andrew. And I was struck by a couple of things uh, reading this. Many of them, like Lady N, just was in the most horrific, imaginable shape you gave her the choice of did she really want to go on a respirator 
she was destroyed. Her body was already destroyed. And she said, no, she wasn't ready to die. Put her on the respirator. So one of the things that I think we all think about, and I just interviewed Dr. Sunita Puri, who's the head of palliative care out at uh, the University of Southern California. How, how, what should be the role of the oncologist or the palliative care doctor to help a patient know that it's time to give up? Are, are oncologists being too optimistic? Is it the patient's just determination to live? Because that's where I think we see this kind of destruction, yet I understand it. If it were my husband or my son, what would I do for another day, week, month? But are the doctors not taking the right responsibility and helping the patients in those circumstances? Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Meaning? Success in circuit lies. Emily Dickinson. Mm. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. Mm. The truth's superb surprise. Like lightning to the children, eased with explanations kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. I love, say those last two lines again. Like lightning to the children, eased with explanations kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Mm. Roxanne, I have to tell you that one of the reasons I wrote this book is because of the confusions that I am feeling. As a doctor, treating them. As a doctor and as someone who took care of uh, her own husband who was mm -hmm. dying, who died of cancer. And it has taken so many years for me to even process this. And I'm not sure I understand it completely and know my reactions. I do know one thing that I have been treating acute myeloid leukemia since 1977. I was using two drugs popularly known as seven and three combination of two drugs. Seven days of one, three days of another. In 1977, today in 2020, I'm using the same drugs. Wow. So imagine the number of uh, conversations I've had with thousands of patients over the last four decades saying the same things about what benefits to expect, what uh, side effects and toxicity they can anticipate, and then walking them, most of them, to their deaths throughout. Yeah. But yet, if I have acute leukemia today, I would take the same treatment. You would? Yes, because I will still hope that I'm one of the 20% or 30% who's going to respond and have a long term. So yeah. I can't say, I mean, we are all humans. We want to give our, the, ourselves the best chance because think about it. What is there to lose? I'm going to die anyway. Why not give myself even one in a million chance? Except when it becomes very clear that now death is the only, yeah. the coming and approaching oblivion may provide the only comfort, then I think it's a different story. And when you bring up the case of Lady N, 
these are the confusions that constantly occurred to me. Did I fail? I had been taking care of her for years. Yeah. And I tried to describe in the book that as I knew the end is approaching for years and years as her disease was progressively becoming more resistant, I have followed enough patients to know what uh, to expect, most likely scenario. Anytime I would try to talk to her, her personality was such that she would just walk off in a half or say, no, I trust you completely. You're going to cure me. Or she would argue back and forth. Why don't you do this or that? And so I kept thinking to myself, did I fail Lady N or is society responsible? Where does individual responsibility end? Yeah. And societies begin because I, she did not know what was coming with intubation. I knew what is going to be in store for her once we intubate her. Yeah. But yet, and the horrors that waited her. But Roxanne, I had to do it because the law forced me to do it. And I want to tell you one unpleasant incidence, which is that um, my book was reviewed in the New York Times by Dr. Henry Marsh, mm -hmm. who wrote in the review, he is a neurosurgeon in England, and he wrote that he often performs neurosurgery on cancer patients, knowing full well that it is not going to help, but he does it because it's too painful to tell the truth. So when I was being interviewed by another newspaper, the, uh, the Guardian in England, they asked me, Dr. Raza, Dr. Henry Marsh has accused you of hubris because you think you'll find the answer in the first cell. How are you different in arrogance than somebody mm -hmm. looking for the trying to kill the last cell? My response was I would not talk about hubris if my name was Dr. Henry Marsh. You know why? Because if I said this, in the New York Times, a brown Muslim woman from Pakistan said that I perform surgeries on people you because would be it's vilified. First of all, my license would be lifted within 24 hours. And secondly, there'll be dozens of articles saying what a primitive culture I come from. See, the East can never tell the truth. Always this kind of uh, smoke and mirror with them. But... Here are people getting away with saying these statements. So yeah. these are the confusions that we are dealing with, and they're very human confusions. And But what has stuck in my mind, you know, because having read your book and shortly after reading Dr. Puri's uh, book, I, I was struck by two things. One, and I think she quotes somebody, but I'm going to give the quote to her, is that the definition of a good life is a good death, that that is part of your life. And I couple that with a book by Ernst Becker called The Denial of Death. And I think about the juxtaposition of that for patients without doctors. Denying the truth to a patient feels like a a form of cruelty in some ways. I don't know if that I, I don't know if that's a fair statement to make, but it feels like it's not trusting people with the information. I couldn't agree more with you. And moreover, I have never met an oncologist in all my 40 years here 
who either didn't care for the patients or didn't try to tell them the truth. Mm. But, you know, just like... You hear what you want. You hear what you want. And just like yeah. patients who we constantly blame for hanging on to the positive and forgetting the negative, when we tell them there is a 20% chance, they'll say they'll take the chance. But then, you know, but the doctors also tend to always emphasize the positive, the positive. when we are talking. They Listen, end with that. They end. You have a... 20% chance. A 5% chance. Even a 5%. Give it to yourself. So, I mean, we all, everyone cares for the patients. We are trying to do our best to help. Right. It's a, But we have complicated the issues to such a degree. My question is that for poor Andrew, a 22-year-old boy dying of advanced brain cancer with the worst possible in every indignity that cancer can visit upon you was visited on this poor boy. And his only choices that we kept giving him were either you die of cancer or die of the drugs or treatment we are giving you. And that is the binary choice. And why is that the only choice after 50 years and quarter of a trillion dollars spent in cancer Wait, research? It is completely unconscionable, and we need to take the blinders off, look at the situation, and realize that we are trying to contain an extremely complex problem. Every little positive thing we see, even in animals, we call it a game changer and a paradigm shifter and, and a it magic ain't, bullet. Ain't that. It, it's not that. And then when it's publicized as such, the public is under somehow the impression that great advances have been made in cancer treatment. And so it's not fooling the public deliberately, but it's in presenting things out of context. You know, only the fine print will say this cure occurred in mice, but the big headline is new cure found for yeah. a kind of and lymphoma. And we go home with that. We remember the positive. So I want to go to your recommendation because it, to me, a bookseller <laughs> makes perfect sense. So I know that's not a high bar. But so you're talking about the, the idea of dealing and having the research focused on the preventive measures. So what kind of preventive measures already exist and what kind of work can be done to discover more? First of all, if we think about what causes cancer, what can we avoid? We have to think about what causes cancer. Essentially, we say environmental toxins or some generic hereditary familial component to the disease or some infection. Right. Or finally, 90% cases are we call idiopathic, cause unknown. Mm, that's helpful. That's <laughs> And for those 90%, we think that it's just as a cell divides into two in our body, it always makes a couple of DNA copying errors. And billions of cells are dividing all the time, and they're making copying DNA copying errors. And we have a very efficient mechanism of removing those cells. But sometimes if something gets missed, it's a completely random thing. So one... It's true that environmental exposure can cause cancer, and we should avoid that. It's true that lifestyle is important. We shouldn't be smoking. 
and we should be eating healthy. But you could be leading the most pristine life in terms of lifestyle. People don't want to hear that. <laughs> yes, but then you can still get cancer because of this random event of DNA copying errors and no age is immune from it. Although it happens more commonly in the elderly, if you can imagine that there's 1.7 million new cases of adult cancers, uh, adults with cancer in this country, in children it's 14,000 per year. So 14,000 compared to 1.7 million means really it is a disease of the elderly. And yes. the older our population is getting, the more the incidence is increasing. So when you ask me what are the preventive measures, there's only that much you can do, which everyone should be doing anyway. But beyond that, I'm saying in this day and age of fabulous technology and developments in scanning and imaging devices and the molecular advances we have made, it is inexplicable to me why we are still depending on putting in a tube in someone's gut and try to look for cancer. By then, it may be too late for a lot of people, even though colonoscopies are saving lives by early detection, but we are missing a lot of cancers, and we are doing it only once a year or once every five years. And are these other methodologies available? You mean the newer ones? The newer, I'm, yes. No, but we need to invest in them. A lot of them are becoming available. In fact, I can show you uh, uh, something that we that is now FDA approved. It's called the M-CHIP I talk about in the in, book. In the book. Professor Sam Sia at uh, Columbia University is it in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. I'm working with him very closely. And... Some these technologies will become available. Mark my words, Roxanne, that in the next the next decade, this decade which is coming of 2020 to 2030, is the decade of early detection markers of cancer. So I'm saying to you that yes, these technologies which were like mammography, colonoscopy, pap smear, PSAs, they have been milked to their extreme maximum. Now we need newer devices which can continuously monitor the human body as if it's a machine. Instead of doing one test a year and relying on one test, we should be doing 50 tests every day. So how does that work? Is that an at-home device? That's what we are trying, not only at home, implantable devices that can go under the skin that will be constantly monitoring and for the appearance. And feeding the information. Yes. For example, here is the M-chip that I talk about. You just put one drop now, of Dr. blood Now, Dr. Raza here. is showing me a tiny little chip. And there is this hole. You put one drop of blood there, and you see those microfluidic channels going yep. up. And this chip is now FDA-approved to test PSA for men, which is prostate-specific antigen, level of PSA by putting inserting it into a device and soon into a telephone, cell phone. And it reads your PSA. You can test your own PSA 10 times a day if you want sitting at home. But soon... Let's say using the tissue repository that I have collected over the last 40 years, if we find the first footprint of leukemia, that biomarker can go into the next channel here. And a pancreatic cancer goes here. And people at home can simply be testing themselves for this. So is there an obstacle to the speed or advancement of these kind of detection devices? You are one of the smartest and most well-read women I know. You know the obstacle is always... Money. 
Yes, you got it. So, so a lot of money's being spent on drugs. Now, I understand entrenched systems, right? We all know how difficult it is to untrench something. But based on the data, I mean, I, I'm I'm a pragmatic person. I it's hard for me to grasp. I understand that people have, you know, their their own their own lab, their own department, their own grant requests, their own. But I would think everyone would be interested in redirecting the money. I know this is naive. Redirecting the money to these early detection devices and away from spending the money on drug development that has such a pitiful success rate. So what am I missing? You're missing nothing except education. People, I agree completely with you that once the public realizes what the stakes are here, mm. and even and oncologists. And they put pressure, collectively put collective, pressure. And oncologists also, Roxanne, because yeah. what's happening is that uh, young graduates who are becoming trained in oncology, they are being told that to recruit you to this university, how many clinical trials are you going to bring here? Because that's what brings financial gains to the institution. So we have to change that paradigm. But the problem is no one in this world ever gives up willingly what they're doing. So how do you shift the paradigm? The mm. only way I Talk love... Talk to young people. <laughs> no, I love Thomas Kuhn in this. Remember the structure of scientific revolution? Yes. He publishes this book back 50, 60 years ago. I read this book all the time, even now. Every year or two, I'll pick up the Thomas Kuhn's thing because he clearly showed that you want to shift the paradigm, you have to show a better way. Yeah. So I'm saying that as soon as we can show that there is some... Uh, muscle in early detection by the novel technologies. For example, instead of doing painful mammograms on women once a year, which result in 40% can breast cancers today are diagnosed at an advanced stage. 45,000 women are dying every year. This morning before I came here, I was talking to a 47-year-old who has inflammatory breast cancer triple negative, relapsed now. What is her chance of survival? So here's what so, we're going to do. Your your book is out. It's gotten total acclaim. We've got 20-something thousand people listening. I think the idea that we, we as regular non-doctor people, can in fact begin insisting as we talk to legislators, as we vote, about making sure that money is going in this direction. I mean, you talked about how much money does the NIH get? It's. It, I was shocked at how tiny it was. The NCI, the, the National NCI. Cancer Institute, has about a research budget of $6 billion and only 5% goes towards early detection. Why? Why is 95% being given to support uh, my studies that have nothing to do with humans? These are my concerns. And what I'm asking is that not only, well, but 
a lot of people are realizing this, Roxanne. I don't want to paint a completely bleak picture. Well, that's good. I don't want to. No, not at all. I am so optimistic because there's a lot happening in the early detection field. may not be funded by the government, but this is one beauty of capitalism. There is enough interest from other groups. I'll give you a couple of examples. So I was telling you that with mammograms, we are still missing 45,000 women who are once a year, every year who are being diagnosed with advanced disease. And what we are putting these young women through mm. with the slash poison burn is 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 what is what keeps me up at night yeah and so now there is a smart bra which is in clinical trials which is uh, this bra is fitted I was fascinated with, by yeah. this bra <laughs> Instead of having painful mammograms, uh, you wear this, uh, women can wear this bra for two hours a week. And it's built with 200 tactile sensors, which will detect any change in temperature pressure. We know that as soon as cancer cells form a little lump, they have to feed themselves. And is this available? It's undergoing clinical trials at Stanford Canary Center. For early detection of cancer, they have a fit loo under trial where you the your toilet will simply take part of your urine and look for biomarkers for early detection of cancer. So you can, you know, there are bed sheets you can go to sleep in which will scan you overnight for the appearance of a hot spot. So today, let's say I go to sleep, Roxanne, and my sheets detect that there's a hot spot in my pancreas tonight. This doesn't mean tomorrow morning I should have an open abdominal procedure and eviscerate myself from every organ. Right. What it means is now there is a region of interest which can be monitored more closely by using 10 other scanning and imaging devices as well as trying to look for biomarkers in blood, sweat, tears, saliva, breath, urine, stool, everything. So recently, two months ago, Toshiba, the Japanese company, announced that from one drop of blood, they can now detect 12 common cancers over four hours for $180. So what's stopping that from Nothing being rolled is, out? It's going to be rolled out. Grail, a company in America... They announced that 13 cancers from a small vial of blood can be detected early. And not only will they detect the biomarkers indicating that they're using cell-free DNA and cell-free nucleic acids, which are circulating as part of the cancer's early footprints, they can do special methylation signatures on that DNA to show the organ it's coming from. Wow. So if you, we call it a liquid biopsy, meaning if there is a cancer in the liver, it's shedding its footprints into the blood. So we are doing a liquid biopsy by looking at the blood. But once we find some abnormal cancerous DNA in the blood, the next question is, where is it coming from? And is it lethal to the patient or just we can watch it? All those questions are being answered. I mean, Grail, the company, has raised billions of dollars because they are investing in this. Um, and the same way at Hopkins, uh, Dr. Bert Vogelstein, I talk about him in the book, one of the most revered figures in the country in cancer research and one of my heroes as well. He's completely turned his focus on early detection of cancer. They have just come out with something they call Cancer Seek, which also looks at just a little amount of blood and looks for all these cancers. So I think that slowly it is shifting, but I think it has to happen faster because mm. of all the lives we are losing now. And this is why I wrote the book and the subtitle of my book, The Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last, is as important as the title itself because 
I decided to look at everything from the prism of human anguish. Yeah. And that's why and we empathy. can't afford and that's why we can't afford to wait. How many Umars and Andrews have to die before we wake up? And I also insist upon trying to develop a solution which is not available only to the few rich and wealthy people in this world, but, but which everyone. has a compassionate cure for you, which is universally applicable. So what you're really, what you're so elegantly talking about in the book is a paradigm shift in speed and attention. Not that it doesn't exist, but that it is taking a backseat to the protocol that's gone on for 50 years. And I assume that the that there are lobbyists fighting for this. Is, is that correct? I mean, trying to educate legislators about the importance of shifting to detection? You're not smiling. No, because what I'm thinking about, Julia, is what's happening to my book, for example. You are being so kind to say all these nice things about it. And of course, it's my 40 years of blood, sweat and tears is in this book. And my this is just not just another one of my assaults on the field to go early because I've been saying the same thing since 1984. Um, the problem that's happening is no one reads in this country anymore, it seems. No one's buying the book. How do I get this... Uh, uh, this message across because the voices Leave it to me. Thank you, Ju <laughs> thank you. Julia's bookstore was the first to invite me, and I I'll always be grateful for that. And completely independently, you invited me because you somehow read the book. Yeah, but my you friend are, Karen. But you are the exception. I am. I don't talking believe about that. I don't believe. I believe that. I mean, I have, I have bookstores, so obviously, I believe people are reading. I I think and I don't mean this in a cynical way. I mean this in a in a pragmatic way. People change how they think when it affects them or someone they love and they understand that there's an alternative. So to me, it's like the drink milk campaign. You know, it has to be that people understand that there is another way to think about it. I mean, we all know too many people that have cancer, right? We've watched too many people feel helpless in the face of the medical establishment and confused and scared and all of these things. It seems to me that there can be a coordinated effort for people to understand that there's an alternative. But I'll bring you back to your opening statement to me before mm -hmm. we even started recording this. Yeah. And you said it was a tough book to read. It was a tough book to read. This is the problem. Everyone wants a neat packaged message in a positive light. And I am against mollycoddling the public continuously and not telling them the truth anymore. So I'm completely uncompromising in my book as a result, but people are not reading it because they're finding it hard to read. Those who have cancer are too scared to read it, although I am really telling you myself, I would take all the same treatments. And cancer patients are the reason for the existence of the book. Well, and I, and I want to I wa I make sure we clarify this. It's a hard book to read because you're reminded of how many people suffer. 
and suffer horribly despite heroic actions taken by doctors like you and other oncologists. But but it is more important than it being a hard book to read. It's an important book to read. And, you know, when we get to the um, end of the interview, I'm going to have you read the end of the book because I think it 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 ends with a kind of optimism um, and a kind of understanding of what can happen. So I think, you know, I hope our listeners don't feel afraid. I hope they feel curious about understanding this in more breadth than um, the interview that we just had. And we'll get to that part. I want to ask Another question. That Can was... I just clarify one thing? Sure. I wanted to say, Roxanne, that while people are, people are scared just looking at it, oh, the human cause, we don't want to know cancer is bad. But once people read even just the prologue. Exactly. Then they can't put the book down because they want to read. But it's how to get people to actually read because I'm very optimistic. I mean, the whole point of the book is that there is a better future ahead for our children and even for us. And there's a better future for patients who have cancer today because the highest incidence of cancer is in cancer survivors. Mm. One in five new cancers is diagnosed in someone who already had cancer. We should be able to diagnose that at the first cell level at least and spare them the problems of this recurrence or an entirely new cancer appearing. So I'm saying it's all doable and it's all doable very, very quickly. All we have to do is identify the new goal, financially incentivize it, and you will see the paradigm shift very quickly with even the first few successes because what we are dealing with is so abominable at a 95% failure rate. It's crazy. It's crazy. We should call it a 100% failure rate because as you said, 5% is no good. It's financially ruining everybody for a few months' improvement in survival. But you know, a lot of times... I mean, here here's a here's a way uh, to think about it. That, and I don't quite mean it as in as exaggerated way as it sounds. But there's a quote from a humorist from the 19th century who says that as Americans, we love live conformists and dead nonconformists. That that progress doesn't necessarily look like progress at the outset. Right? There's always the first step, the first drop, the first conversation. But like cancer cells grow, so can ideas, but not necessarily in the way that you think. So I wouldn't underestimate the um, the provocativeness of what you're talking about beginning to sort of have a, its own contagion once people understand that. At least start a conversation, as my colleague Siddhartha Mukherjee says right on the cover in his blurb. Yeah, so we'll Please read, read it. Yes. He says, and he, he, he if, for those who that might not know, is the author of the, um, I think it won the Pulitzer, the yes. Emperor of, of All Maladies, an elegantly conceived, powerfully written, and far-reaching book that will change the conversation around cancer for decades to come. So that's a good start. Yes, but people have to read it to initiate the conversation. Well, that is my whole idea. Here. Yes, we're we are starting, starting today. So let me. Can I please quote Emily Dickinson one more time? I, I, and by the way, for our listeners, Dr. Raza is 
reciting these things from no notes. She's just <laughs> like saying them. So I just yes. I just want to know. I just want everybody to know that. I claim to know 100,000 verses in memory. Oh, my goodness. A word is dead, Emily Dickinson. A word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. See? Let today be the beginning. Let, of the let today be the beginning. Exactly right. And so we'll close with um uh with this. Uh at the end of the book, the burden of this book from its opening paragraphs has been to chronicle the intimacies of cancer kept confident by those who experience its anguish. The conceit is my absolute conviction that the engine driving social and scientific progress in quantum leaps rather than in unbearably slow increments is one fueled by empathy. Only the profound suffering of cancer patients has the power to ignite a brand of compassion necessary for demanding urgent and dramatic change. Only empathy can break the foolish consistency that is the hobgoblin of oncology and little minds. The future is in preventing cancer by identifying the earliest markers of the first cancer cell rather than chasing after the last. I've been saying this since 1984, and I will continue to say it until someone listens. And then you close with a quote from a gentleman by the name of Ali Ibn Abi Talib. And the quote is, for the individual with eyes, the dawn has already arrived. Dr. Raza, thank you for joining us for a conversation. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Azra Raza, the author of the important book, The First Cell. Thank you so much. An honor being here, Roxanne. Thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selleck. Our editor is Gino Cordone at PleasantPodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjulia.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just the Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.